a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about. Politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today on Deborah Craddock, we will be speaking with Evelyn Schreiber. Evelyn is a former business owner a volunteer for the elderly, has tutored second and third graders to help them improve their reading and writing skills. She is a mother, a grandmother, and one of the most stunning 90-year-old women I have ever met. Let's get to know about the life of Evelyn. I am certain it will be inspiring. Hello, Evelyn. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. You are a New Yorker now, but where are you originally from? Antwerp, Belgium. Who did you grow up with in Antwerp? With my parents and my younger brother, Sylvan. And so you only had the one sibling? Yes. What was your home life like? It was a very happy home. My mother, even in the 40s, which is when I left Belgium, she was already very much like today's woman. We had a nanny, and my father had a handbag and luggage store, and she helped him in the store. He was basically in the back working on custom-made leather goods, handbags, and luggage, and my mother was up front taking care of the customers. So... During the day, I was basically raised by my Dutch nanny, who came from Amsterdam, Holland. And what's the age difference with you and your brother? A year and a half. Were you very close growing up? I think so. I think we were pretty close growing up, yeah. And so mom was a modern woman at the time, and she was working with your father. And how was that relationship? Mom and dad. Oh, They they were happily married, as far as I saw and felt. But there were times on and off when they did argue, you know, but nothing very serious. So it was a very warm and loving home? Yes, I felt it was a very warm and loving home. So was that a religious home? Not very religious, but we did not have pork or shrimp in the house, and we weren't that religious that we had two sets of dishes, but when it came to buying meat, we only bought kosher meat and kosher chicken. So it was a Jewish household. Yes, yeah. And were you exposed at all to any politics of the day, or were they aware of, you know, the political scenery around them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
especially my father, and he was in 1940 when I was eight years old. He was 37, my mother was 35, I was eight, my brother was six and a half. My father was very involved with politics and always listening to the radio. We didn't have television then. And I heard him talking to my mother about what's going on in Europe and the Nazis and the Germans. I heard all this, but as an eight-year-old, I didn't really understand what's going on. And so did your father seem stressed about what was going on or what was brewing at that time? No, but he, I could see he was always listening to the news and very aware of what's happening. Was anything going on like at school? Did you, did you feel any oppression coming towards the Jews being a Jewish girl at eight years old? Did you feel anything happening? No, the upper middle class Jewish families sent their children, the daughters, I don't know about my brother, I'm not sure, to a French speaking school because Belgium is a dual language country. They speak Dutch, Flemish and French. And the nanny that I had, the housekeeper, whatever, she came from Holland. So I only spoke Dutch to her in school. I was taught in French and at home with my parents, we always spoke French. And my paternal grandmother, she was from Frankfurt, Germany, and I spoke German to her. And my mother's mother came from Poland, and I don't know how, and I spoke Yiddish to her. So we (laughs) spoke everything in the house. And when my grandparents visited me, I spoke their language. So you were multilingual. Yeah, kid. yeah, yeah, and it's not unusual in Europe. A lot of Europeans speak many more than one language. So in the French school, was it just mix of religious backgrounds, and or was it predominantly Jewish? The school you went to, or it was just international? It was mixed, it was but it was, and, they, and it was not religious in any way. It was uh, an academic, upper scale French speaking school for girls. And so your father's business is is doing well and your mom's working with him and you and your brother are just living a a great life as kids. And at which point does your father feel something's going on? I remember that day very distinctly. It was May 10th and we were having lunch around one o'clock and I heard music. May 10th, what year? 1940. And I looked out of my dining room window, which was on the fourth floor, and I saw soldiers marching. And I thought it was a parade. And I said to my father, oh, there's a parade out there. This was around one o'clock. And they were marching with leather boots. And my father said, it's not a parade. The Nazis have invaded Antwerp. It was May 10th, 1940. Oh, wow, Evelyn, I just got goosebumps. And he said to my mother, we're leaving tonight at 7 p.m. She says, what are you talking about? It's one o'clock. I can't leave at 7 p.m. He says, I don't care. We're leaving tonight. He said to my mother, you go to the sporting goods store, get four backpacks, put in what's important. And he said to me, you could take two books and one toy, et cetera, et cetera. And my mother calls up her sister, Caroline. She says, Bernie's crazy. It's one o'clock. He wants to leave tonight. 
Her sister Caroline married with four children. She said, no, they're just marching through. They're not even going to stay. We're not panicking. We're not leaving. And she calls up her brother, who was like 23, and then calls up her other sister, and no one's leaving. We're the only ones that leave. And then my mother brought over some very valuable things that she cherished, photographs. I have all the photographs when I was growing up. Silver, crystal, some other things that meant a lot to her. To our neighbors who were not Jewish, they were Christian. We were friendly with this family. So my mother brought over all these things for them to keep. And she said, we'll definitely coming back after this is all over, but we're leaving tonight. Is this as you're heading out of town? Yeah, and and at 7 o'clock that evening, we just closed the door to a beautiful three-bedroom apartment, and we got into a car with another couple that had a younger child. So we're seven in a tiny car, and we just took off, and we left Belgium. Uh, The next day, the Nazis came to my mother's sister's house, the the one that had a husband and four children, and they took them away the very next day. They took her brother. They took my father's mother. But my mother's father and mother were lucky. They knew some Christian people. They had a huge house. And they were hidden during the whole war with these people. And they eventually came to America in 1940. They they survived the war by being hidden by Christians. The Germans hadn't invaded France yet, not until September, and this was May 10th. So we got out, you know, in time that night. So when you reach Marseille, where do you go from Marseille? Well, we, we live in Marseille a few months, and then... We go to Portugal, Lisbon, because Lisbon was neutral during the war. And a lot of Jewish people from Belgium went to Shanghai, uh, Argentina. A lot went to Brazil as well, but a lot went to Lisbon. Lisbon was very open to welcoming refugees. And another story was, this is a very fascinating story. My father had a sister and the sister had a husband with four sons. Two were seven and eight, and the other two were 11 and 13. And my uncle, my father's brother-in-law, his sister's husband, was in the glove manufacturing business, but he didn't make that much money. He needed more income. So on the weekends, he had a, a stand at a flea market in Brussels where he sold Christian religious objects like rosary beads, things that the church would use. So the priest went over to my aunt and uncle, my father's sister and her husband, and said, you have to leave Belgium. It's getting very bad for the Jews and it's it's very, it's not safe, you need to leave. So my aunt says, we don't have a car, we don't have the money, we have four children, we don't know how to go about this. So the priest said, I know of a count and countess in Belgium. It's on the border and they have no children and they run a boys boarding school. I will find out if they would take your two younger children. They don't take boys over the age of 12. So they will not take your two older sons, but I will 
speak to them and arrange for you to bring your two younger sons to this Christian boarding school. So my aunt gets into a train with her two younger children, seven and eight, Raymond and Henry, goes and speaks to the countess, lovely woman. As a matter of fact, years later, I went to Belgium and I visited her. She has a huge castle with 50 rooms, you know, and Obisan tapestries. This was about 20 years ago I went to visit her. So she brings the two boys and, and the countess says, you realize I have 30 other boys here and they're all being raised Catholic. And I have six Jewish boys, but your sons will be raised Catholic. So my answer is, that's fine. I, I appreciate your taking them. As long as they're saved, I, I don't care how they're raised. I'm happy that you will take them. So she wrote a little letter to each one of these two sons and gave one son a ring, I think her wedding band, and the other son some earrings. And she said, that when this is all over, I will come and get you and we'll all be together again. She takes the train back to her little house and there's a Nazi car in front of her house. And she comes in and the Nazi says, where, where are your two younger children? She said, they're on a play, they had a play date. He said, well, we'll wait till nine o'clock. If they don't come back, we take you away. And they never came back because they were at the boarding school. So they took my father's sister, her husband, and the two older boys, never to be seen again, to mm -hmm. a concentration camp. Flash forward, Raymond turned out to be a gym teacher at a high school, and, and Henry worked for the United Nations as an international attorney. After the war, there were eight Jewish boys that were at this boarding school, and six of them found some relative or parent to go to. But my two nephews, my two cousins, couldn't find their parents. So we were in the United States. They didn't know where we were and, or anything. So the count and countess legally adopted them. And they, in the winter, they went skiing to St. Moritz. In the summer, they went to Cannes. They went to the best colleges. The, the count and countess basically raised them. After the war, both the count and countesses were honored uh, in Israel at Yad, Yad Vashem. In the year 2001, I decided to go to Belgium, and I made sure that I would visit Henry at his home in Belgium. Was this the first time you were going to be seeing Henry since, yeah, yeah, the, since the war? Yeah, I don't even remember Henry and Raymond when I grew up. I don't remember so, them. So I'm in his house. It's a very simple little house. And he said once a week, the countess comes to his house for lunch. So she's still alive. No, she died about 10 years ago. Suddenly well, she at must the age. have been very old. She was about 85, 86 when she died. Okay, so the countess was young when, when the kids were placed with her. Oh, yeah, she was very young in her 20s, 30s, yes. Okay, wow. So he said to me, I belong to a church in the town, but I'm not that observant. I don't really go to Sunday church I do go Christmas Eve, but there's something there that I would like to show you. Would you go? And I said, of course. So we go to this really 
beautiful, tiny church. And he takes me to the cemetery. And there's this huge plaque, like the size of a door, in Hebrew letters. And it says, here lay my parents and my two older brothers who died during the Holocaust. Wow. And it was big mug and dove it, and it was the only gravestone amongst all the others that were Christian. And the priest said, absolutely, I'd be honored to have that in my church and in my cemetery. And there were little pebbles on the gravesite. Right. Do you know what that represents? Do you? It means that you visited. Okay. It's a way of saying that someone, someone came. came. Beautiful. Yeah, that someone came to that. And when I saw it, I took a picture. It was like so touching and moving. Amazing. <laughs> let's let's rewind a bit. So you go with your dad, with the backpack, you go to Marseille. You guys are the lucky ones who are escapees now. Right. And you have not, thank God, suffered the oppression or the, right. you know, the uh, imprisonment of the, of the Nazis. So you're in Marseille. And then how do you go from Marseille to, I think it's New Jersey where you ended up? Well, what happened is my father said to my mother that afternoon, go to the bank and take all our money out because we're going to need it. Close up the account before we leave that day, May 10th. Right. He says, right now, first thing you do is go to the bank, take out all your our money, take out, bring, my mother didn't have that much jewelry, take the jewelry that you want, that you want to keep. And he and, just locks up his shop? Yeah, he just closed the shop. And we found out later that the Germans went into the shop, took all the stuff, you know, whatever. We had a little bit of money, not much, but when we were in Marseille, the people would gather and talk, and where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And they said, we could go to Lisbon, and there are these fishermen that have fishing boats. They have fishing boats, and for the right price, they will take families to the border to get to Lisbon, to Portugal. So you go from Antwerp to Marseille, from Marseille to Lisbon. Right. And in Lisbon, I went to school. And when I came here, I spoke fluent Portuguese. So you stop in Lisbon for how long? A year. One year. And then how do you go from Lisbon to America? So before you board the ship, there's someone that looks at the children and at the parents and I come out down with scarlet fever and I have a rash mm. from head to toe and the guy that's admitting us on the fishing boat says you can't come on this boat I mean the, this woman this child has uh, measles or chicken pox some communicable disease you can't get on the ship we paid to get on the ship. It was a, a, a very important voyage to get to Lisbon so my father said, I'll stay on the upper deck. I won't go below where there are any passengers, and I'll stay with my daughter up on the upper deck. It was like an open fishing boat. And I remember being up there, and I had my father said I was burning up with temperature, but luckily it started to rain, and and the cold water dropped my temperature. Wow. We get to Lisbon, and I'm very sick, and they put me in the hospital. And here I am, eight years old, in a strange country. I don't know how to speak Portuguese, and I'm in the hospital. Are you just frightened? Are you Yeah, sad? I was really scared. But I remember they were nurse, the nurses were nuns. It was a Catholic hospital. And they, they were very kind and very caring to me. So now we're in Lisbon, and we want to 
come to America. But we really don't know anyone that could sponsor us and make visas to get us into the United States. So my mother, is very, my mother was very smart, very clever. And she was born in Poland, but when she was 16, her family moved to London when she was about 16. So during World War I, she lived in London around 1914-1915 and when her family decides to move to Belgium because her father was in the diamond business and Belgium is the center of the diamond business she speaks fluent English because she was educated in London and she learned in about a year or two she was speaking French very well so she applies for a job at a diamond company in Antwerp and she works there as a secretary. She's now 19, 20 years old. This man, David Davis from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, would come to Antwerp to this diamond firm to buy loose diamonds, bring them back to the States, and then have them sit in for jewelry. So every time he came there, he says, I only want to see Rosie because she speaks English. I don't speak French. Rosie was your mom's name? Yeah, Rosie. I only want to see Rosie because I can speak with her and she speaks English. So every time he came, she would take care of him. Flash forward now 20 years. She's, my mother is 33. My father's 35. She goes to the American embassy in Lisbon, looks up David Davis. She sends him a letter. She gets his address from the American embassy. She says, I don't know if you remember me. I am, na- I am now married. I'm here in Lisbon with my husband and two children. And I, I, I was wondering if you could help us come to America. This, is, this man was about 45, never married. He was too old to be drafted in the American army. Sends her a telegram. I will work on visas. And it took a year. He, had, he spoke to senators, to congressmen. But at the time, Roosevelt was president and he stopped immigration. He said, no more refugees. We are not letting any more refugees in from Europe. And this is even before the worst Yes, because the war the started war. December 7th. This is around June of 1940, because we left May of 1940. So he's working on this. And finally, after a year, we get a telegram, visas are on the way. Wow. And we get on this ship. It's called the NASA. It still exists. I think it's docked somewhere because it's an important ship. And it was the last ship to leave Europe. And is this like a freight ship? No, it's a passenger ship, a regular passenger. And I have pictures of myself on the ship. So we take this ship from Lisbon a year after we leave Antwerp. When we, we arrive in Hoboken and Mr. David Davis, with his girlfriend at the time, is waiting for us at the pier with a stretch limo. He wow. said... I've arranged for you to have an apartment on 99th Street and Riverside Drive. It's, the rent has been paid for two years. It's all furnished. Wow, what an incredible human being. He said, I mean, this was just a secretary in a diamond firm that he maybe saw once or twice a year. He says it's all paid for, the rent, and it's furnished. 
as soon as my father got a job, he started sending him money f- for the rent or for the passage. He would never cash the checks. He would so never, he, he would wouldn't just, take reimbursement? We arrived June 13th, 1941. Wow. And now I, I Googled this building, apartments in that building, one million two, one million three. Every year for Hanukkah, he would send me a gift certificate to Best and Company. It was like a Lord and Taylor kind of department store. It was known for beautiful, expensive things. And every year he would come to New York once a year and take us out for lunch. Oh, so you got to know him. Oh, yeah. And he's, and what I remember he said, my mother and father said, I, we still can't thank you enough. He says, if you save one life, you save the world. You know that saying. Yes, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> yeah, it, it was such an unbelievable story that because of him, we were able to come. What an amazing man. Yeah. What a heart. I mean, he took the responsibility of taking a a husband and a wife and two children. So how long do you live then on the Upper West Side over there? Oh, I grew up on the Upper West Side until I married my first husband in 1953. You were how old when you married your first husband? 20. And you were living it with your parents still? I was living with my parents and... um, I graduated from Julia Richmond High School on the Upper East Side. I married my husband, Jack, February 1953. So at this time, were women at all expected to go to university? Or Well, I really, I did go to NYU, but then my daughter was born May 1954. And your first husband, where did you meet him? At a synagogue dance. Okay, so there is somewhat some form of religion going on in your upbringing. Oh, yeah. Where you're connected yeah, yeah. to a temple. We did always go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. I did fast. So even though your family had seen such a tremendous loss with the Holocaust, not with your immediate family, and everybody's lost a lot of family because you guys had the wherewithal or your father was... smart enough or quick enough or just lucky enough to get you all out of there. Did they come out thinking maybe there was no God? I I, I met people over my lifetime who survived the Holocaust who either really leaned into religion or they said, how could there be a God? I never heard that kind of discussion in my home. We went to synagogue mostly for the holidays. How did you arrive at your personal political perspective that you hold today? Was there, when they got to America, did they fall into any sort of political Oh, my my family was very democratic in their thinking. My father was very supportive of Roosevelt and Truman. Um, And I'm really nonpartisan. I vote for the person not for the party. Where did you wake up and say, this is the Evelyn that I'm going to be, and I'm going to be this person? Well, after I was married to my first husband, I said, I'm not happy. I'm 37. I don't want to stay in this marriage any longer. When I decided I want to get a divorce because I wasn't happily married, I started going to work to save money enough to give the attorney a retainer. It took two years. I divorced my first husband, and I was 39 at the time. After I get divorced, I end up moving to Florida. 
and my mother was living in Florida. And that's when I started reading Cosmopolitan magazine with Helen Gurley Brown. And, and she influenced me a lot at that time. You know, she was, have you heard of her? I have not. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you're so young. <laughs> Helen Gurley Brown, she said, you're 21, you can do whatever you want. Forget about the fact that you're a woman. Go there, go girl, you know? And she started the movement, like just, what's her name? Friedan, you heard of her? <laughs> so they're all women, they're famous women at the time. What year is this? This was in 1971. Okay. They started all this assertiveness, you know, and women, you know, on second class I'm citizen. five years old at this point. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, what do you know? But that, but she, this Helen Gurley Brown, she was amazing, and she gave me a lot of... So women empowerment. Yes, yes. Wow. She, these two women. The 70s was a moment for that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Really and and they really out. gave me the courage to go out there. My, my ex-husband did not support my kids. I mean, he sent me $30 a month for each child. I did not get alimony because I was working and I had th when I moved to Florida in 71 I had three jobs and how long did you stay there I was living in Florida about six years and then I decided to move to Fort Lee New Jersey I had a very good friend that I was friends with since I'm nine years old she was also from Europe and um I stayed with her for about three or four weeks until I found a job in Fort Lee and an apartment. And they wouldn't rent an apartment to me because I didn't have a, a solid work record in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So my friend and her husband co-signed the lease, nice. which was, I said, how do you know I'm going to be able to pay this $450 Lucky a month? break, huh? Yeah, they co-signed the lease. I'm, I'm living there a year and a half. I have my own apartment. So one night, I go to this place in near Fort Leaf, and it's a very beautiful restaurant, a very high end. It's called the Palisadium. And I had a next-door neighbor, Phyllis Gold. She was 36. She had a Ph.D. in statistical and clinical psychiatry. She was 35 and just divorced her third husband. Okay, so now you have a single girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, and she lives on the same floor. And I call her up and I say, Phyllis, let's go to the Palisadium. This was February 5th, 1978, I remember. I said, Phyllis, it's Sunday night. I want to go to the Palisadium, have dinner, and then after dinner, let's just have a drink in the lounge. She says, no, I'm too tired. I had a date Friday night, Saturday night. <laughs> I, I didn't have a date that weekend. So I said, I just feel like I want to go tonight. I just, just feel like I must go. So if you don't want to go, I'll go myself. The last minute, she says, okay, I'll go. I'll meet you. Let's go. So we go, and we're, we had dinner. And then there was a little lounge. And the two of us are having a drink. And in walks Renee. I this said, is the gentleman from your yeah, building? Yeah, from the, from the office building. I said, Phyllis, look at him. He's a very nice guy. He's interested in me, but he's younger than I am, and she was around his age. And I said, I'll introduce you. She said, sure. I didn't tell her that he was extremely wealthy. Very oh. sick. I didn't mention that. I just wanted her to meet him and like him. So he, I, and he comes over, oh, hi. I said, Renee, I want you to meet my friend Phyllis. And they 
talk and they get along and it's three of us. And I said, three's a crowd. And I look at the bar and I see a really nice looking man sitting by himself. I said, Phyllis, I'm going over there. I'm going to say hello to this guy. She says, you are? And I said, yep. <laughs> so I walk over to him. I said, hi, my name's Evelyn. What's yours? He said, Freddie Schreiber. Okay. And he had an accent. I'm familiar with the last name. I, and he had an accent. And I said, oh, where are you from? Uh, he says, guess. I said, French. He sounded very French. German, Swiss. He said, no, I'm from Belgium. Oh. I said, Belgium? I said, I'm from Belgium. He says, no way. You sound like Barbara Streisand, very New York, very American. I said, well, I've been living here, you know, in the States for many years. I said, uh, so you're from Belgium? Where? He said, Antwerp. He says, do you still have, he says to me, do you still have relatives in Belgium? I said, yeah, my mother's sister, she lives in Brussels. What's, what's their name? Well, when Freddie Schreiber was 23 in 1939, he came to the United States with my uncle. Wow. Antwerp is a very small community. So, but wait, we don't know that he's your husband yet, but you met this gentleman at the lounge. He now knows. My you, uncle. You, make this, you do this geography where, where you realize he knew your uncle. He was on a ship. Which they is shared a cabin. astounding where you just like, of all the people. Amazing. And, and Freddie was 23 at the time when he went to America with him, with my uncle, on business. Okay. So now he's here in 1941, and the war breaks out. He's oh. going back and forth. So they want him to go back to Belgium and join the Dutch army. And Freddie says, no way. I'm joining the American army. So Freddie Schreiber, husband number two, enlisted in the American army to fight in World War II. So he never goes back? No. He stays in America. He doesn't go back. He, join, he, he joins the army. Because he spoke French, Dutch, German, and English fluently, they put him in, in army intelligence. He's 23 years old, and his job was to decode the Morse messages that the Nazis were sending and he landed in Normandy, D-Day plus wow. one. Freddie. Wow. And then he says, how can I join the army? I'm not even an American citizen. What they did, they took 50 foreign young men and they became citizens in one day. They, wow. you know, they said, I pledge allegiance. He became a citizen. Then they sent him to army intelligence and he was in the World War II for three years. Amazing. So fast forward, you're at this lounge, you meet this gentleman, you do this, you put these things to get these pieces together. So we meet February 5th, 1978, and we get married August 30th, 1978. Wow. Six months later. You just knew. I just knew he was the right guy. Now, knew him about a month. He says to me, I want to take you on a trip. He says, no, have you been back to Europe since you left May 10th, 1940? Now, this is February 1978. I said, no, I've never gone back because I had children and just never went back. He says, well, I want to take you back to your roots. He, I didn't even have a passport. Mm -hmm. So I had to get a passport. It was very difficult. I had a right to the Belgium to get my birth. I didn't even have a birth certificate. So he tells you he wants to take, take takes me to Europe. 
for one month. Wow. So I said, oh, my God. And um, he said, uh, when I was in the Army, I was very close to someone that was from Switzerland. And he's not doing well. He's having uh, heart problems. And so one of our stops will be Geneva. And then we're going to go to Belgium. And he took me to Capri, you know, and he took me to Rome and to Florence. One month trip. It was like, and then he, I know I, I was divorced when I met him. And I was struggling. I had, I said, well, I just started this job. I'm not going to get any vacation. They won't give me a month off. He says, if you're worried about losing your salary for one month, I said, yeah, because I got to pay rent. I got two kids in college now. And he says, I'll take care of that. Don't worry. We went to Europe, came back. We went June 15th to July 15th and August 30th. We got married six wow. months later. Wow. Yeah. And you just hit it off. He was I just hit it so off. lovely. We were married 23 years. Beautiful. And he died in the year 2000. I'm sorry. Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> so when you went back to Belgium, what what did you feel? Talk to me about those well, emotions. Well, the first thing I said to my mom, I said, give me the address where I lived. And I went to the building, and and it was a like an eight-story building with terraces, and we lived on the fifth floor. And I recognized the terrace, and I remember my mother used to make homemade yogurt, and she had these jars on the terrace with the milk, and the sun would ferment the milk into natural yogurt. Delicious. So I went to the building and I recognized the building and the terrace. Then I said, where did dad have his shop? Now the shop is a flower shop, which is, when I saw that it was all flowers and plants, I started to cry because my father loved flowers and plants. Flowers would be what he would love to see. So I did go back, and then I said, tell me where I went to school, and I remembered the school, the building, the entrance. Go on this trip, which is all around Europe, for one month. Right. And when you return, you get married? Yes. Uh, On the plane, he said, uh, we came back July 15th. He says, we're getting married August 30th. I said, what? He said, yeah. Okay. So... Now you're, you get married, and this is your second marriage, and I'm gathering your happiest marriage. Yes, yes, I was very happy. Um, he wasn't that easy. He right. was a perfectionist, but I'm sort of, as I said, OCD. I like things, <laughs> you know, very, I'm very organized. Everything in my house has a label. <laughs> and so you together, are you religious then in the house, or are uh, you? No, of- not not. No more than what I had when I grew up. And was he kind of like a modern guy? Was he hip? Was oh, he, very did hip. he stay very, current? Very current. Because very you, hip. at nine years old, I feel like I'm talking to, I don't know, a 35-year-old. <laughs> Thank you. You. Know, you have this open mind, and you're so warm and friendly. I, I mean, we wouldn't have met if, I, if you weren't, because <laughs> you were sitting right next to me at the restaurant. Um how do you how do you stay so together for your years? What do you do? Give us your secret to being gorgeous at ninety and sharp as a tag. Well, I'm very I'm a very positive person. I, I just everything I never think of negativity. I said it's just as easy to be positive as it is to be negative 
My mother said I was always outgoing, positive, friendly, very daring. I was mischievous. I think every day is precious. I love people. I'm outgoing. I eat very healthy. I really, really order in. I'm not like an organic nut kind of person. So organic. when you say you rarely order in, are you cooking or are you going out to dinners? Well, or? right now I have a current boyfriend for eight years. His yes. wife died about 10 years ago, and I actually met him on the internet. <laughs> you are hip. So I go out to dinner with him four times a week. We have a Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes Sunday. When I do cook for myself, it's very simple. And every morning I have yogurt and blueberries and one cookie with my coffee. And how do you keep your mind active? I really think playing Mahjong. Oh, good. <laughs> Mahjong. I play That's a Mahjong. game of numbers, right? No, it's memory. It's tiles. Oh, it's a Chinese okay. gambling right. game. My girlfriends I, used to play and I never I joined love the club. The I'm addicted to it. I so would it's play a tile. Every- so it's more patterns and things. Yeah, yeah. It's a Chinese game. Now I'm in a game with four other women. I read a lot. And you say that you are an optimist. Did you feel there was a spike or a rise in anti-Semitism? I live in New York. I don't see any anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, because I'm 90, going on 91, I lost 12 friends. 12 of my friends died in 85, 86. Two are in facilities. And most of my friends are younger now. And I have uh, three or four friends that are in their 50s and 60s. Nice. And uh, I don't feel, I mean, I'm just so upset about all this gun shooting. So of the things that uh, affect you and offend you the most. More than anything. And so another it's the gun thing that violence. upsets me is that Trump is going to run again <laughs> and that he may get in. Do you feel anything about this political landscape today in America? I think it's... Not the America that I'm used to living in and believing in. I think America is, and I've traveled all over the world. I've been to South Africa four times. I've been to Mauritius on the Indian, I mean, exotic places, uh, Antarctica, you know, these kind of trips. And what I find is that People are the same all over. They want the best for their children. They want good education. Everyone has their own type of sense of humor. But of all the countries I visited, I think America is absolutely the greatest country in the world. I could not agree and, with and, you more. And, and you know, I, I, I wouldn't live anywhere else with all its crazy politics and gun shooting. I think we'll get over this. This is a, a terrible time. and. And, and the politics are just so confusing to me, very confusing. Right. I don't know who to believe anymore. Right. So where does one find truth? Where do, where do you, where do you seek your know. news? You know, where do you I find I mean, when it? you see a guy like George uh, Santos, I mean, it's bizarre. And they, and they, and they don't, and he's not leaving and they're not, I mean, they, what, what, do they, what do they have to do to get him out of office? Have you ever missed an election? Never. I think it's the most important thing to do is to vote. I always vote. What concerns you most about guns in America today? I'm, sometimes I get, I do take buses and I'm saying, 
how do I know there's not some crazy person on this bus that just decides to, sh I mean, this has only been the last six months or so. I get like, I, I am actually nervous sometimes to get on a bus, but I do take buses, but I, when I get on the bus, I look at everybody that's sitting there, and if there's someone that looks kind of weird or strange, I've gotten off the bus because I'm scared of this gun thing well, that's there's so out much. of control. I don't go to the ATM late at night anymore. Like, I used to go sometimes after dinner at 9 o'clock, but I say, who knows who's lurking when I, they see me, you know. I don't feel as safe as I used to. Okay. So do you feel that there should be more scrutiny for people going to buy guns? Like what? Yes. Well, I think you are one dynamic woman. And, <laughs> and I know that there's so much more. You know, I know that you you said that you uh, did start your own company, which, yeah. which you had for 14 years. Yeah. I had a, it was a, a headhunting and employment yeah, agency. Personnel agency. Yeah. Wonderful. And that you do or have volunteered in your community to help feed and visit with the elderly. Yeah, I did that is, around Passover. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and, oh. and there's an organization, I forget what D-O-R-O-T stands for. It's been around a long time. It's located on the Upper West Side. But they said they need someone to visit these people that live alone. And I, I brought the masses and things, chicken noodle soup around the holidays and chatted with them. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Well, you seem to be a person who brings joy and optimism <laughs> wherever you go. And I am so excited that you came here today and we got to hear some of this great story of yours. And I mean, I, I wish you another 90 years. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And it's been an honor and a privilege to hear more about you today. Thank you. I'm glad I did this. This episode of Deborah Craddock was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was well, performed was by Amy Nelson American and Kathy girl. Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at Deborah Craddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so let's talk about it.